a little extra introduction to your Strange Assembly episode today. Folks, we just wanted to let you know that if you're interested, you can now support Strange Assembly on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangeassembly. Patreon is sort of like a Kickstarter for ongoing content. It lets you become a patron of the show and sign up to provide a, a small amount of support on a per-episode basis. If you'd like to check out more, again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash strangeassembly. Thank you for taking a look. This is Strange Assembly, episode 170, The Brew Crew. This is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. I am, as always, your host, Chris Stevenson. Here with me today are Jay Earl. Hello. And Mike Cook. What's up? Hey, it's uh, it's been a bit since we had a non-collectible, customizable episode on here. What's what's wrong with us? I don't know. We've been yeah. too busy collecting things. Yes, I mean, but... where do you want to start? There's a list. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's many things that are wrong with us. Not necessarily pertinent to this episode. So... So there's that. But today, we are just going to go back to some good old board and card games. I think we're going to aim for seven of them. I'm just going to talk about it a little bit, tell you why they're, they're good or not. So let's go ahead and just jump right into the games. Mike, what have you got for us? So the game I will first be speaking about is Xenoshift Onslaught, which was a kickstarted game from Cool Mini or not, because I don't think they do non-kickstarted games anymore but the basic gist of it is it is a base defense deck builder who can plays one to four people essentially what everybody starts with mostly the same deck but you have a roll card which gives you two other different cards to start with and will assure whatever you need is going to be in the randomized center pile of equipment so there's a pile of equipment there's a pile of guys um, of like better troops than what are in your deck. And essentially what you do is you actually gain a resource at the start of each turn, then you buy stuff, then you can deploy stuff how you want it, and then you're going to have four enemies that flip up. So at first they're going to start wave one, and so then you basically result, go through attacks, some cards you can play from your hand, some effects you'll play that are on the board, but basically, they attack each other at the same time. Though they flip up, they may do something. If they do something, you have to you have a chance to react to it. Then the two front characters attack each other. Then you see if one of them dies. If they don't, then they repeat until one of them dies. Then that line moves forward, and that continues until either all of the enemies have been defeated or all of the uh, defenders have been defeated. If all the enemies have been defeated. Great, all your people stay there. What damage they took stays on them. If the enemies, uh, sorry, if all of your uh, defenders have been defeated, the attack value for all of your, uh, all the enemies remaining in the lane is each subtracted from a total value that is your base. It's like, you know, some number that's ostensibly how tough your base is or whatever. So it's 15 per player. So if you were in a three-player game, it'd be 45. So if I have five attack worth of creatures that I ha- I don't have any defenders anymore for, 
that five will go away from that total, and then they all get discarded. And if you're in a multiplayer game, that continues with each person in clockwise manner. So you'll do three waves that way, and then there's three, wave one, three, wave two, and three, wave three. And then the end of wave three, if you survive the end of wave three, you win the game. And that that's basically all there is to it for that. The other main thing to note is that your your resources, your crystals, actually increase as you uh, go between waves. So when you get to wave two, there's a three-cost crystal. But there's no way to buy resources. You just get one of whatever's appropriate at the start of your turn. And then also, if you have any, like, ones at the start of wave two, uh, sorry, at the start of the second, uh, I guess, wave. So it's wave four, really. Turn four, four, wave two. Turn four. Yeah. Round four, sorry, turn four, wave two, you will get the three, and then you can take any ones that are in your discard pile and just go ahead and shred them and replace them with threes in your discard pile. And so in that way, it actually lets you upgrade your resources without having to actually do anything, which is kind of nice. I actually really kind of liked it. And then there are also troops that are better that are only available uh, during Wave 2, and then other troops that are only available that are even better during Wave 3, and of course are more expensive, but you've got more resources. And your Wave 1 guys, you can't buy any of the regular militia unless you're one specific one. They're just like two one guys that, you know, two attack, one health guys that you start the game with to start in your deck, and there's a slightly stronger ranger that I think is like a 2-3 that you can buy for like two... Either of those, if they're in your hand, you can actually shred them, permanently removing them from your deck to decrease the cost of the next troop you buy by one. So that's kind of how you upgrade them and get your deck to be better. One of the twists to this is that it's actually a completely cooperative game. There is no competitiveness to it. There's no scoring mechanism or anything. So whenever you buy things, you can actually put them in other people's lanes. Now, when you put them in somebody else's lane, if you're playing a multiplayer game, if you put it in somebody else's plane or equip something to somebody else, that is permanently theirs. So they permanently get that, but hopefully they'd be helping you or, you know, you'd be playing actions for them or, or something like that. And so that's the basic gist of the game. So when I played this, I, I've mainly played this solo play so far, but I mean, I had a pretty good time. I think overall, overall it's pretty entertaining. My few criticisms for it would be that uh, the timing is a little unsure. It's a little unclear in the rules book. At, at one point, the timing reference says that each person only gets one interrupt effect whenever a win revealed effect happens. I'm like, that seems like if you're playing one player, that would be really hard to finish then. And at, at the other hand, there's, you know, there are face up cards and then face down cards for the enemies. When you get them, you get four cards in your wave you'll get a card that just says, do three damage. And then I was playing a role that says, when you play a card that is of this type, you get to do two more damage, but you get to do it wherever you want. Well, there were times where I did three damage to whatever was face up, and that would kill it. But then I had two more damage to go somewhere else, so I just went ahead and assumed that I could damage face down things, because there are cards that specifically referenced face up, but there was nothing that referenced face down, so I assume that's correct. We drew that same conclusion. It doesn't say one way or the other in the rule book, but well, it, it does say that there are some effects that say 
that they can only target face up things like you you can only deal the damage to like the next face up thing creature and then right. the rules also mention that if damage gets put on or a a face down guy gets targeted then they get revealed so yeah well, we we concluded that the same that you did that you can shoot shoot face down things unless it's said otherwise and the other thing that um, I was really unclear about was that when you read the rulebook, because it's a very thin rulebook, for the most part, the, the rules aren't complicated, so that's fine. It's just a couple of timing questions that really came up for me. It says that when uh, on-reveal effect, it flips up, and then the on-reveal effects happen, and then you get a chance to interrupt them. But that makes it sound like, so if this thing flips up and says, I do do two damage to everybody, and, you know, that's defending... It sounds like that happens before I get a chance to react to it, but I don't think that's the case because there are specifically interrupt cards that stop face-up actions from happening. So, you know, those would obviously not be able to do anything if that were the case. So so that's like a little bit, you know, it's just some rules questions, really. That, that was really the only problem I had with it. For the most part, it, I had a lot of fun with it. I do think the equipment doesn't really seem like there's a, a giant scale in the equipment of the, the, because the equipment is completely randomized except for the rules that you have, which that, that'll say, okay, well, this one piece of equipment will definitely be out. So whereas the, the troops really scale in power and that's really good, the items really don't. So you can have something that's like really not great out there and it's just kind of a dead slot from what I could tell. Yeah, you you really have to look at it and be like, do I really want to buy this thing that costs one and then clog up my my hand? You can then the dynamic can change later on because you you have a lot of guys out and then and then you can get to a turn where like if you have like if you're full already, cards that you buy unlike in most deck builders go right into your hand and can be used that turn. So right. if I've only got one empty slot in my row, I only want to buy one one soldier. And then I'm just going to load up on whatever sort of immediate effects I can get. Now I I've been played this at the opposite player count that that Mike did. It takes from like you said I I think you said this Mike it takes from one to four. I've played with four. I don't know that I could really recommend it at four. It takes a while. Like it it took a lot longer to play this than we thought it would. If I had to guess, I would guess like three might be the sweet spot. Maybe two. Yeah, it's not uncommon that games that really, if there's no specific different thing about four, that often three is is better. But one of the things for me is that it really does seem to have a snowball effect. Either you do really well and you're just going to win the game, or things snowball the other way. Yeah. Well, and playing one player, the one thing that I kind of missed is I felt like. That, you know, being able to give people things was a really cool thing that I, I couldn't really do, obviously. I mean, I could play two, two positions myself, but I really just didn't want to do that. The big thing, as far as the snowball goes, is that your guys stay out. So if you have a successful turn where you end up with two or three strong soldiers, maybe with equipment still in play and mostly healthy... Or even with a little bit of health, but a lot of attack... Yeah, or just guys out, because now you've just got guys out. You don't have to replace. Like, we we took more damage earlier in the game than we took late, which is usually not how it, it goes with cooperative games, right? You want it to stay on the edge right until the end. We basically got to a point where one of one player would have a very good turn or a couple of turns, and then would end up with a loaded board. 
then that player, every time that they bought or drew a soldier, they could use their resources to assign guys to other people's lines and which obviously is something you can't do in, in a solo but i mean at that point you'd just be drawing dead cards because i'm drawing more soldiers what do i care about these and so really once we had full lines we did not take very much damage so i i think our last sort of real tense point would be you know halfway through the game and then we'd go through wave three and barely take any damage because we were just loaded at that point. And then the the last turn was, was a joke almost because we'd have all these loaded lines out. We'd just use all of our resources to buy these instant effects and just massacre the board, which didn't help with the, uh, with the, the play length because we were playing with a four player group. That's more time for it kind of to start to feel stagnant instead of you know just going through it and having the end of the game be closer to the the sort of tipping point so yeah it was okay but i i think you've got to try to play it at a very at a quick pace yeah i liked it overall what did you think of it it was okay it's- yeah i know there's my ringing endorsement i it, it wasn't bad, but I, you know, I, it's not like I'm going to be going like, oh yeah, let's play Xenoshift again. It just took too long and was not tense enough at the end. And did I mention it? It just took too long for what the game was. It took just hours to play. And I did not feel like we were being particularly slow. I mean, we weren't being fast, but that was that. But you liked it, so everybody has their own. Yeah. I don't know. So that's that Xenoship from Cool Money or Not, and that just came out earlier this year, right? Yes. It officially came out like to retail maybe a month ago or so. I want to say maybe even just a couple of weeks. That probably sounds right, yeah, because I, I played with the Kickstarter. To, to be fair, I played with the Kickstarter version, which does make it slightly easier because there are these upgrades to your hero, to the soldiers. There's one upgrade, like a foil upgrade card for each kind of soldier. And if at the end of a turn, one of those kinds of soldiers is still alive, you can swap them for like the veteran version, some of which are just kind of bonkers, which may have contributed to our ability to kind of lock the game down halfway through. Okay, because I didn't play with those, and I didn't feel like it would be terrible, but I also felt like if I got dealt a different hand of enemies, it, it wouldn't have been great either. Well, I, I was I talked about that because you mentioned the snowball, because I could see if you if you never got to that point where you got to really carry over anything of significance from turn to turn, you just get hit for more and more and more. But once you do get to the point where you can start keeping guys out, the more you start with, the more you can focus on keeping out the guys that you have and buying things like health to keep your awesome guy out. And I don't know. All right. So my first game of the day is brew crafters from dice. Hate me games. And this is somehow, I, I believe the first time I've actually played a game from dice. Hate me. Brewcrafters is a worker placement game. It's 
drawn comparisons to Agricola and Caverna, although I, I don't think those are really the best comparisons. You are a brewery. And I will know. I'm, I'm, you know, let me just do the headline at the end. I think Brewcrafters was fantastic. And let me know that this is despite the fact that I know nothing about beer. So um, it's like, okay, malt and hops. I don't, okay, that, what, what exactly are these again? I know there's stuff that goes in beer, but I, so uh, you play the game over three years, four turns per year. Each one's a season. And you have a two different kinds, work replaced, but you have two different kinds of workers. One kind of worker is out on the market getting the ingredient getting money and getting the ingredients that you need to put together your your beer and then the second kind of worker your shift workers they can either brew beer or they can work in the lab to develop better techniques or they can expand your brewery with different kinds of equipment you can also hire in you know i think they're called special workers but they aren't the workers aren't called workers so the, the the special worker cards just give you some sort of special ability. The primary point source is, shockingly, brewing beer, which requires you have to have the certain ingredients for different kinds of recipes, and you have to be able to make a basic stout before you can make advanced stouts. And there were just so many different ways to attack it. Oh, and there was there's a technology tree, so you can... You know, improve those, and like is often the case with those. And oh, wouldn't you? You'd like to do a lot of technologies early because that then lets you get repeated benefits from them. But you have to brew three times before you can bring in a second shift, which is a worker that then gives you a second one of those brew or develop or build actions. And what's the right way to go with that? I think it gets compared to Agricola or Caverna because a lot of the resource slots have the you know, if nobody takes it, it kind of builds up. And there is an upkeep mechanic. At the end of the year, you have to pay for your facility and pay all your workers. So I've heard reviews of that that make it sound like it's very brutal, like you're never going to escape from the first turn without taking loans. And I, I don't agree with that at, at all. You can't just expand and buy all new everything the first turn and never get any more money because, yeah, then you're going to, eat through all your starting cash and and not be able to to pay for everything at the end of the year but it it was it was really great it was so great that actually in my last cool stuff order i included brew crafters the travel card game just because uh, apparently it was basking in the reflected glow of brew crafters I played it and I wanted to play it again and I and I have found myself when not playing it thinking about strategies and I'll tell you for right for just random worker placement sorts of games okay I could think about different strategies while I'm sitting there at the table I, I don't think about them when I'm driving home from work but I think Brewcrafters was really very good uh, it just came out so or, or just came out this year not like two days ago so that is Brew Crafters from Dice Hate Me Games. How about you, Jay? So I played a game Clockwork Kingdom by Mr. B Games. It's a work pl- worker placement game, which, surprise, surprise, based on its name, is steampunk-themed. It's got the traditional worker placement of there are spots that you can send your workers to uh, to get resources or... 
You can pick up cards and build cards with the resources that you've gotten. There's also several special specialized workers that make certain different spaces better, and so there's places to go get them. One of the twists that it has is while there are spots that are just like, go to this spot, get some steel, go to this spot, build a thing, there's also a couple spots that are just control. So it's one of those put all your workers out and then later pull your workers back and actually get whatever they were going for. So there are a couple areas that are area control. Whoever has, whoever has sent the most people in the turn gets whatever the benefit for that space is. For instance, there's alchemy stones, which let you change resources into other resources. It's a lot of engine building. It's very much a game about getting resources to build things to get you more resources. But then the primary victory path, there are four different war zones around the city. The flavor is, you know, they're uh, vying over control of the city. So you can send your workers there and basically win military engagements, and that's how you get victory points. It takes place over, like, nine turns, so you have a certain amount of potential victory points you can earn over that many turns. That's the basic idea of the game. I enjoyed it. It was a fun game. There were I felt like... This is a Kickstarter, right? Yes. So I felt like there were a couple of things that, you know, that often problem with Kickstarter where it could have used a little more polish in some areas. For instance, as I said, it's victory point tracking, but there's not really a way, an easy way provided to keep track. So we just, you know, had a pen and paper to actually note people's scores as the game grew drew on. And then there's all these workers for worker placement, but most they were all, you know, just cardboard stands felt very six-year-old's game with, you know, we're playing Candyland, you've got the little Candyland stand-up as your workers, not wooden meeples that we're all used to. Jay, Jay, Candyland has plastic pieces, man, and now it's, even that doesn't have standees Ooh. anymore, I don't think. <laughs> Forgive me for not having a four-year-old such that I haven't played Candyland in, like, three decades, so... Believe it or not, I somehow do not actually own a copy of Candyland. Uh, we can fix that. Some other podcast, we will, I, I do when possible gamery little games with, uh, kids. So some other day we can, I can review like three little pigs or Baba Yaga or something, but, but continue. But so yeah, that's, that's the basic idea of the game is it's a timed worker placement. You play so many turns, you try to build up your engine to score points and whoever gets the most points wins. So we played it together. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add on the game. Not a lot. It was a good game, not amazing, but it was a good game. But yeah, if you're a uh, picky about components, the component quality was was lousy. No way around that. Yeah, a, a score a score tracker would have been nice. It would have been nice to be able to tell the difference between resources because they were kind of colored the same. But I overall found the game enjoyable 
I'd happily sit down and play it again. Right. Preferably somewhere brightly lit, but... Brightly lit and bringing the uh, treasure chest. <laughs> did you did you back that? I did, yes. You did? Very nice. Yeah, all of them? Oh, did that ever finish? I haven't... I've got the original one. Oh, okay. I was thinking the... They... they yeah, yeah, they the, recently did the, we're going to do, like, three more of these. Yeah. Yes. So that you didn't do? I did for one of those. No, I, I don't do those. I like nicer components, and so I guess that there is some amount I'm willing to spend for nicer components, but I'm just not going to go out and drop 30 or $40 on something that's just nicer components i i don't take any issue with people doing that but that's just not they, they could be cool i i've if i was going to do it on something honestly i would buy the D and bulls for lords of waterdeep and the fact that i love lords of waterdeep and play it quite a bit and haven't even sprung for that kind of tells you where i am on the upgrading components spectrum <laughs> so that was clockwork kingdoms my next one is the brand new, supposedly wasn't going to ever happen, ninth expansion for Dominion, which is Dominion Adventures. Now, this was kind of interesting in that I actually have not played Dominion in a while. I have, since the game was released, played scads and scads of game of Dominion, but I got to the point I don't even have guilds. I had kind of gotten bored with it. I mean, no matter how good it is, I can only play the same static thing so many times. So, you know, there's always always cult of the new sorts of things going on. But Dominion Adventures really added a lot of different things. It is not a standalone expansion, so you, you do have to have one of the, the base games. There's a lot of mechanical things in here. There are duration cards again, and the... The old Seaside duration cards were always just a card that you played and it lasted until your next turn. Some of the new duration cards last the entire game. You now have a little tavern board in front of you, and the main thing you do with that is that you can play reserve cards, and a reserve card has some or no effect right when you play it, except to put the card on your tavern, and then at the later time, you can play the card out of your tavern. You can call it, uh, I think is what the, the game says. So... There's a one that was, I think, Royal Decree, that you'd play it. It was an action you played. It would go in your reserve. And then later, immediately after you resolved some other action you had played, you would play the Royal Decree as a copy of that action. There are tokens now, and a lot of the tokens just can be used as reminders of things to do, but some of them they do mechanical things with. The one that seemed to do the the most mechanically with token-wise was a the journey token. And this is a token that doesn't do anything on its own. It's got a front side and a back side. And it only does anything as referenced by cards. What the cards all basically do is that every time you play them, you flip your journey token over. And then if the journey token is on the face upside, you get an awesome effect. And if the journey token is on the face downside, you get a lousy effect. So it, it gives you a card that if you're just playing with one of them, then right every other time you play it, you'll get the good effect, and every other time you play it, you'll get the lousy effect. But you could also potentially be playing with two or three 
cards that use the journey tokens, and then you could potentially try to manipulate which ones of them get their lousy effect and which one of them get their better effect. There are also events, which are a completely new card type. You just kind of put them out with the kingdom cards, I guess. And as a buy, you can pay to activate whatever the ability on the event is. So, you know, it could be, well, there's one that works with journey tokens. Pay four, flip your journey token over. If your journey token is face up, gain copies of three of the cards that you have in play. This can be very handy with duration cards, especially the duration cards that last for the entire game. The best one of those was the Hireling, which there were actually only a couple, I think, but the, the Hireling is six gold, and you put it into play and you draw an extra card every turn for the rest of the game, which is actually better than gold. Not a lot of things are just better than gold, but I think that was it. Usually six is just, I buy a gold. I, it's better than whatever these other options are. So it was a lot of fun. It It was... I guess nice to be excited and interested about a Dominion game again instead of going, oh, these cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I buy a Smithy. I buy some silver. Whee! And of course, that's uh, from Rio Grande and uh, Don X Baccarino, although I don't think he's personally involved with them anymore. You're up again, Mike. The next game I'm talking about is Roll for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy is essentially a dice version of the pretty famous Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy was a card game where you tried to take over planets and uh, get victory points. Roll for the Galaxy is essentially the same thing, only you buy tiles, which will give you dice. And so essentially what you do is you actually start with two starting tiles. One's like a double tile, one's a single tile. And then what you do is you start with a certain setup. Everybody starts with the same setup, but then depending on what starting tiles you have, you'll have a slightly different setup. So you might have a different die that's available to you in your worker pool, or you might have it actually in your cup. And whenever whatever's in your cup is what you get to roll for a turn. So getting some things in the cup obviously is better than having them in your worker pool, because at the end of the turn what you do is you pay a certain amount of money to get people out of your worker pool and into your cup. The basic gist of it is whatever's in your cup for the turn, everybody rolls at the same time, and you have actually a screen to hide what you actually roll. And then all of the different faces of the die each correspond with one of the phases of the game. So just like Race for the Galaxy, Roll for the Galaxy, you don't do any of the phases if nobody picks that phase. So there's exploring, which lets you go look for more tiles. There's settling, which lets you try to settle a planet, which you have to have already on your sheet. There is, I think it's development. So there's developments that have diamond symbol. And essentially, they're the same thing as planets. You just use a certain number of dice to pay to put it into play. Then there is produce. Producing is any of your planets that have a slot that tell you, okay, this world has this type of good. Any of your dice that you used in the produce pool will go on those planets as a good. And then there's consume, and consume is well, pretty much like you expect. It allows you one for one for each of the dice in that row. It lets you consume goods off of the planet, and that lets you either get money or get victory points. 
so when you when you get these dice, you roll them and you'll have the different sides that come up. And what you actually do is you have a little board behind your screen where you line up each of the dice that rolled at a specific whatever they actually show on their face. If it's a wild, you can put it in whatever category you want. Then you can pick any one dice of any of those dice that you rolled and you can put it on one of the phases. It's a little bit hard to describe verbally. If you were able to see it, 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 it's a lot easier. But, okay, so say I have Explore and I have Settle, right? So I I rolled three Explore and I rolled three Settle. One of the things I can do is say, okay, well, Settling doesn't do me any good because I don't like this planet that I have. What I can do is choose one of my Settle dice and put that on Explore, and that will guarantee that uh, we'll be doing Explore this turn. Now, I can leave those settle dice just where they are, and if somebody else picks settle, then I can use those settle dice during the appropriate phase. If nobody picks that, then they just go right back into the cup. So they're good for next turn, but I don't get to use them this turn. And another ability that everybody has, you'll get more of, depending on what development you get, but the base one that everybody has is if you take one of your dice and essentially put it back in the cup, you can move another dice into any other category. And because you don't change the die facing, it's easy to like be like, oh, do I want to do this and move everything around? Then you're like, oh, no, that doesn't really work. And you can undo everything very, very easily. So that that's pretty much it. There's a pile of victory points in the game uh, in the middle. Yeah, I think it's like 12 per person. So whenever that pile of victory points runs out or whenever your tableau of cards that you're building builds up to 12. And of course, all of those cards have victory points themselves. Whenever one of those two things happens, that's the end of the game, and so then everybody gets an equal number of turns, and then you just see who has the most victory points. So it's very similar to Race for the Galaxy. If you've played Race for the Galaxy, it has a lot of the same feels and mechanics, and of course a lot of the same cards. The tiles are pretty neat, so when you explore, you've got a, a, on your sheet you've got a pile of planets you can settle, and you have a pile of developments you can build. And each tile is actually double-sided. So at the beginning of the game, in addition to the two tiles that you get that are just out, that are like your starting stuff, you get to draw two random tiles, and then you look at both sides, and one side's always development, and one side's always a planet to be settled. And it's always reversed or the same, meaning if I have a high-cost settlement, it'll be a low-cost development, and vice versa. Or if it's like a three-cost planet, it'll also be a three-cost development. So it's it's a nice balance for whatever you might need. And then every time that you explore, what you can do is you can discard any of the cards that you already have available on your tableau to build, and you draw one plus the number of cards that you discarded. But whenever you get new cards, they have to go on the bottom of the stack. So there's definitely some decision-making as to you don't get to see what you have beforehand, so it's, okay, well, I'm going to check these because these don't really help my pl- strategy, and I'm going to go fish four more, and, okay, these are, you know, these are better options. And it's it seems to end at about the same point the Reach for the Galaxy is. I, like, I really like the games, but it always does seem to be, you get to a certain point where, oh, awesome, I've got my engine working, and, you know, I do one thing, and I get to do three things off of it, but at the point that you start doing that, you basically win. <laughs> so I like having an engine that runs for a little while, and it's the, always the little thing that's a little underwhelming for me for race and roll, but at the same point, you get to usually get a one or two really cool turns, but then the game's over. So I guess that keeps it from going too long and getting too ridiculous. Always leave them wanting more. Yes, but I really, really like it. If you like Race for the Galaxy, I think 
most people would really like it. If you like strategy games, I would definitely recommend it. The, the parts and the components are actually really, really nice. So, yeah. I've played Roll as well. I can say that everyone else at the table really liked it. I It befuddled me. <laughs> Why did it befuddle you? I don't know. It is a rare thing. I am usually, I think, very good at very quickly grokking how games work and being able to sit down and execute at least a competent game of something. And I went through the entire game of Roll for the Galaxy, apparently just having no conception of what it was that I needed to do to advance in the game. Nothing I was doing ever seemed to work. It was very weird. And in order to tell you why, I would have to like go back and study it or something, which is not something that I've taken the time to do. It's one of those games that you really have to learn the game itself. Race for the Galaxy had a free... AI program developed for it. It won't let you play multiplayer, but it'll let you play single player on your computer. And I played a lot of that. And playing the computer and watching what it does, you realize, oh, I'm being really inefficient. <laughs> you should really just go for like whatever is benefiting you right now, because the game doesn't last as long as you think it will. And once you see how everything starts to flow between each other, it makes the game make a, a lot more sense. It is one of those things It's like, you really have to get it. And unlike other games like Seven Wonders, where you might go through it and be like, well, I don't I don't really understand what's going on, but I just like, I guess I'm just picking stuff, and okay, this is okay. And then at the end of the game, you're like, oh, okay, I, I really kind of get everything that's going on. Race, it's pretty easy. I could see pretty easily, or roll, actually both. I could really see where you get through the game and be like, I don't know what happened. Yes. Yeah. I got to the end of the game of roll, and I... I had no idea what. <laughs> just it was it was this very very unusual situation. But like I, so like I said, everyone else that I was playing it with liked it. I I don't even know what to say. I'm like, I don't feel myself competent to have an opinion. I will bring it over again one day, and we'll try it again. Maybe if you'd be up for that. <laughs> I, I think you'd like it once you uh, you know. Once you get another crack at it. Yeah. So that was uh, Roll for the Galaxy. Uh, my last intro for the day is Alchemists. I actually want to play Alchemist. You should. Advanced warning, it uses an app. I will say that it requires an app. It's a free app. Technically, there's a system where you can play without using the app, but then you have to have a GM, which no one is ever going to want to do. And it's a worker placement game where you're at and you're a magician in academy and you're trying to publish papers and that's mostly pretty standard stuff so we'll just skip that the part that makes this distinctive is that there is also a deduction logic game going on at the same time you are alchemists you are over the course of the game going to have the opportunity to create potions using the, I think, eight different ingredients. And 
each different combination of ingredients will produce a particular potion. And so that's what the app does. It generates a particular array for this particular game. And then every time that you combine two ingredients, that will give you a particular potion. And knowing what the ultimate potion is that's produced will tell you something about the underlying properties of the ingredients. And each of the ingredients has, right, there's like three different categories and they could be that are colors and then they can be plus or minus and they can be big or small and they combine there's right there's there's eight in each of the right there's eight of them to go with the eight ingredients but you don't know which is with which and so you have to be able to say well i combined this ingredient and that ingredient and it gave me a red plus potion and that means that i know that neither of these ingredients has red minus as one of its underlying elements so i can go ahead and eliminate all the combinations that have red minus and then you have to to try to figure these out and then one of the major victory point sources is publishing papers where you put your marker down on a particular theorem that the black feather ingredient is this alchemical formula that's its underlying formula that's what my paper says and at the end of the game, if I'm right, then I'm going to get victory points. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to lose victory points. And you can try to disprove other people's assertions. How often that happens will, will kind of depend on the flow of the game and how quickly people get to make assertions. This was another one that I thought was was really good. It's absolutely worth checking out. And that's Alchemists. Jay? My final game is Kanban Automotive Revolution, published here in the States by uh, Stronghold Games. So Kanban comes from, I've of course immediately forgotten which one, one of the Japanese auto manufacturers back in the 80s restructured how they did their assembly line with this whole new process that took off. It's Toyota. Was it Toyota? Okay. So that's sort of the basic idea of this game is it's a worker placement game. You've got the main board out, which is the factory in its entirety. So there's there's a boardroom. There's a design room where you work on designs of cars. There's the warehouse where you get parts for the cars. There's the factory floor where you build the cars. And there's a test track where you test and make sure that the cars actually work. Each player is ostensibly like a middle manager in this company trying to impress their bosses by going around and spending a certain amount of time each day doing work in one of these areas. And then there's an NPC that's the boss. And I've forgotten, was it Susan? Was that the name of the boss that's wandering around? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. But so there's the boss going around who is basically, depending on how you want to play it, either rewarding those who are doing well or punishing those who are doing poorly, but generally trying to make sure everything's on track at the company. And so that's the general flow of it is you're trying to build cars. There's a number of different ways to get points. 
But generally speaking, you get points by either advancing the cars, getting improvements built for them, or by actually constructing and acquiring the cars. And then there are occasionally board meetings. That's when scoring happens. There's uh, several different mechanics that happen there to get points wandering around. And then after a certain number of these, the game ends. Whoever built the the best cars, got the most points, is going to be the winner. I enjoyed it. I enjoy worker placement in general. I still think that the first time... So we played... Chris and I both played this at the... What is the name of the thing? The Well Played? Well is that Played. It? Yeah. yeah. We played this at Well Played, and the guy who was running the game told us that was the weirdest game of that he'd ever seen. Basically, it wasn't until we finally realized we absolutely positively have to actually build the cars that we started actually building the cars. Yeah. There were long stretches of the game where just nobody was bothering to build cars. We were all just like, ooh, look at this fancy new engine we've we've designed for the car that no one's building. Yeah, it was basically there was no incentive to be the first one to build cars because when the first person to start building cars got nothing out of it. You always wanted to be the guy who came in after that and was able to push the cars out and get victory points and then hope that somebody else didn't swoop in immediately after you and just buy the car that you had just pushed out. Right. One of the interesting things is a worker placement. There were the, what, five or six different areas of the factory that you could go at, and each of them had two spots that could be gone to. And basically the way it worked is you start at one end of the board and you work your way up executing actions, and then you go and you reassign your worker somewhere else that people aren't. So depending on where you are, you could be blocked from where someone was last turn. So I thought that was an interesting uh, gate on the mechanics. It also, so there were two places on each of them. Basically, in a given turn, you would normally have one to four actions that you got, and so that would be how many spaces it was. But there were also ways to bank actions. So it was ostensibly styled as shifts. So there were ways to bank up extra shifts. And so later you could be like, okay, while this space normally only gives me two shifts, I'm going to spend two of my banked ones to get the full four that is the maximum for the turn. But in all, I enjoyed it. It was an interesting game. It was interesting how all the different pieces came together. And I I feel like part of the weirdness there of not building cars was just that it was several people's first time playing the game. I will say this is a game with a lot of fiddly bits. So if you don't like fiddly bits, this is not the game for you. But if if you're okay with fiddly bits, I quite enjoyed it as a worker placement game. I'm okay with fiddly bits as long as there's a a sufficient payoff. I didn't feel like there was that here. It just felt that there were a lot of odd incentives. It didn't feel like while we were playing... The, or even after a player says that there's just no, it's you just, somebody's just gotta, you gotta just rely on somebody to kind of push stuff out there. It just had a lot of, of, of oddness to the game. It, it didn't have, 
elegance, let's say. But yeah, the the board. I I wonder if it would feel less complicated looking if the board was not so busy. But I don't think that really caused uh, any issues for us. No, not once we got into it. But yeah, it it was all right. But it uh it had been something I had wanted to to get played because it had been a little buzzy. But uh, yeah, it fell a little flat for me. Alright, I think that is all the, the games we're going to cover today. Was there any last thoughts that you gentlemen had? I like games. That is good, because you are on the wrong <laughs> podcast if you don't. I was going to say, I'm going to take the counter-argument and say I love games. <laughs> That's really us. Debate. Tabletop gaming. Love it? Or super love it. <laughs> I mean, those are really your options here. Mm. Okay. Well, you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can check us out on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or through iTunes or Stitcher. If you download us through another service, we'd always appreciate it if you leave a review or rating. That helps other people discover the show. You can follow us on Twitter, where we're at Strange Assembly, or check us out on Facebook, where facebook.com slash strangeassembly. If you want to get in touch with us directly, I'm chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Jay Earl and Mike Cook, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs>